0: in Manchester um, and uh, thank you for giving us the time no really nice. really appreciate it thank you inviting us? us. yeah, <laughs> yeah. no uh, absolute pleasure so we're going to um, obviously talk about uh, data science we're going to talk about cloud architecture um, talk about you guys and, and your sort of journey over the last few years um, and maybe also talk about um, clients that are looking at taking on a data science project for whatever reason the why's and wherefores, and and the things that they need to consider when going on that journey. Sounds good. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Super. So, first of all, Joe, um, tell us a little bit about your <coughs> kind of career history, where you've come from, <laughs> um, and, and kind of where you are now, and where where you want to be, or where you see yourself in the next few years.
1: Yeah. So, I guess historically, I always liked not doing just one thing. So, even back in GCSEs, A levels, I always liked having maths and computer science is two separate things when yeah. I was sick of maths I do computer science then when I got sick of the computer science I go back to the maths and that continued so I went to university and I did computer science and maths at university as well uh, found I really like seeing sort of the visual side of data the visual side of websites it, w- it wasn't enough for me to you know run a program and see a little tick at the end it, it had to be something better than that it had to be something visual or something spectacular so I moved to front-end development, started making websites and stuff, and eventually found my way to laterooms.com. And there, one of my close friends, Dom Duxbury, uh, was sort of the first data scientist that they had, but not officially. I guess this is common in companies where there'll be one person that starts to look into machine learning and data visualization and dashboarding and, and accidentally becomes a data scientist. And I think off the back of that, that's sort of how John was sort of sought out as the first data science. Well, I'll leave that to your story. Yeah, fine. <laughs> so that, there was a new data science team at laterooms.com, yeah. and Dom decided to go do a PhD. And I, and I was thinking, hmm, maybe I should do data science. And we sat down and did this. There's a very famous data set called the Titanic data set that has the sort of ticket numbers and the names of all the people on the titanic and whether or not they died Um, and you have to use (laughs) that and predict whether or not they died and the really interesting thing is because it was quite a sort of chivalric, chivalric? Chivalrous? Chivalrous chivalrous time, the women and children mostly survived so you could do a really naive AI or machine learning model that would only predict they survived if they were a woman or a child and assume they died if they were men. I think that gets you something like a 70% accuracy and this was sort of the first time I did something very complicated but at the end you just get one number at the end and I was like this is kind of cool and like how can I extend this wow. um, and so I applied to the data science team where John was the boss and I managed to get that John to talk about that. <laughs> and, this one. Um, and Then after that I went back to front end development because I found the data science industry so difficult. The, the way recruitment is done at the moment it seems like all yeah. these big companies don't really know what's going on and then all the little companies will sort of read one or two blog posts and they'll have like a very very slim view of what a data scientist is so you know you can fail interviews on questions like what is this particular type of model when really that, that might not be relevant or recruiters might ask you what algorithms have you used in the past and I'll, I'll be you know there's questions like that where I'm thinking if you're asking this I don't think you really understand what data science is as, as an industry so I felt very frustrated and went back to front-end development and then from there I sort of got poached into a startup where I'm now a data scientist but also a project manager but also okay. a front-end developer so I'm sort of doing a little bit of everything and then after that me and John have sort of got a company together where we're doing product development but we'll talk about that after John.
0: Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's great thank you Joe. Do you, do you find that your front-end development um, experience mm-hmm. has helped you then? Yeah. With, with, with your data science? Yeah I career? would say so
1: at the moment I think data science is this big overarching title of what is really maybe five or six different jobs. Yeah. I think included in that is sort of data analytics, you know, machine learning, data engineering and stuff like that. The data analytics side encompassed in that is data visualization. And I think if you can have your data visualized in a front end that people can see, I think that's really powerful. So dashboarding is a huge part of that data visualization of that data analytics subset of data science as a job so I think it all fits in together and I think a lot of companies while they're looking for one data scientist at the moment they should really be looking for two or three people that sort of fit all those different jobs and so I think it's helpful this is one of the reasons why me and John kind of work so well together is because John's more deployment back-end machine learning and I'm more of a let's look at this data let's ask these questions let's solve the problem and let's visualise it in a way that actually shows us
0: value at the end, so between us it works very well. And so that's, John, really you're more of the architecture side of things then?
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. Um, and, your, and
0: your journey? Where did that my, journey
2: well, my journey is similar, I guess, but different to Joe's, so I, okay. I was driven, I guess, more by curiosity through school, uh, and again, I grew up in uh, Manchester. Not renowned for its farming, but yet I ended up (laughs) doing a PhD in the molecular genetics of wheat. Um, (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, which is quite a a weird path to take in the first place. And um, got into doing some basic machine learning as part of my PhD Um, and some friends who were developers. Um, And then in the the PhD, I kind of thought, well, data data science seems like a good thing. And it seemed interesting for me, and it seemed an awful lot of businesses need this and could benefit from it. Right. Um, how hard it could it be? I thought. <laughs> um, so off I try and I, and I started applying to a couple of companies and luckily um, and there was a good amount of luck there's so just in the cusp of when data science was a big buzzword, um, but people were still very negative about what what kind of things it could do. Right. So I was at, you know, I, I knew quite a bit about machine learning techniques, I knew quite a bit about quite a lot about science, I had a PhD. Yeah. Um, so you know, I was in a, a good place uh, but I was able to say to go in and then start working at late rooms, um kind of with Joe sorry Joe, with Don who was an intern at the time yeah pick up from him what he was doing on a technical level pick up from the directors what strategic objective they want to um, want to understand and want yeah. to achieve work with the data guys to figure out what we had what resources we could use and then say, oh okay, oh dear, well this is right back to the dry board then, yeah. we need to figure out how things can work and it wasn't actually at all about, these are the right algorithms to deploy or these are the treatments and controls or scientific, or things that you see more in scientific um, statistics, it's more helping you solve this problem Okay, and that's where speaking to a lot of um, infrastructure, um, operations, and developers, architects that's where all that um, came to be absolutely paramount in thinking about how we could achieve our goals and that's kind of where going and um, where I came from as supposed to do a heavy dose of science, a heavy dose of development, but really it's about how we're gonna operationally solve these problems. And not to ramble on about it too much, but it's well it's that's why you're here. Okay. Fine. Well no, rambling massively. Okay. So DevOps is a massive deal, um, and quite rightly so. Yeah, but DevOps in a machine learning system, um, in a machine learning scenario, is co- it's not completely different, but there's a complete um, dimension in there which data, which isn't, is usually not relevant in a regular software system. Right, I mean, obviously there are there is data, but not the same co- not the same situation as you have. Um, so. Making sure that you have the right um, type of data, the right format, but within the right distributions, and it meets all the assumptions and constraints that you, uh, that you use when you train your model, or that you use when you design your model. That isn't something that um, regular regular DevOps has an answer for. So it's been really cool. Um, you know, to people who both um, come from infrastructure operations, DevOps kind of focus, and data scientists in Manchester who are also trying to figure this one
0: out. Right. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. So it's. It, you know the, the, the sort of science behind it but then the architecture very much go hand in hand yeah. and and um, you know in your experience in the last few years have you seen the um, kind of advances in cloud computing make a big difference I'm yes. guessing yes. and that's to, to what you can do physically um, is that a silly question I don't know oh
2: no no I mean I think it's um, again with so many of these subjects both big data cloud um, yeah cloud computing, there are so many buzzwords and so many case studies you never know who to trust. Mm. Um, I found that it can be tran- um, transformational just because it's easier to get things up and running and to try things out quicker and see what will work in an operational situation. When you're working on um, an on-premise data center, there are all kinds of constraints that may well um, that can be there quite rightly and there can be constraints that are there because it's politically expedient within the organization yep. to do so. That that raises really difficulties about what you can and can't do. Those are usually very different constraints in the cloud, and with the cloud because I, if I'm using AWS or GCP, and the same person in America is using AWS or GCP, so lots of um, lots of different people are looking at and trying to solve the exact same problems. Whereas your own bespoke architecture at home, that, that, that's just you and your problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's
1: been a lot more data tools appearing in Google platform AWS as well in mm. the last like two years. A common new one is AutoML which is you let the cloud platform do all of the training for you. You just provide it the data tell it what the target is and it does that all for you. So it kind of seems like they're trying to take the parts of data science that I guess we enjoy and make them the automated parts. It's, it's a weird one. You always think of like data science jobs as being one of the last ones to get automated but now you're seeing like there's so many data science people in the sort of Cloud industry that it's a it's a huge, I don't know the word, like it's it's a huge slice of their pie I guess so they're building many products for data science type of people. Mm.
0: I was talking to a data scientist the other day that we were um, helping find a job, um, and he was talking about what the next big things, and he was talking a lot about automated mm. data science. Is that what you? Is there a certain irony around the fact that you know that that, that many so these al- of these tools are going to automate the process that a data science would actually do or a data architect might do. I th- well,
2: do you want to try and get this module?
0: <laughs> I,
1: I don't think it's a bad thing because I think th- there's a common saying in data science that like 90% of the data, is, uh, 90% of the work is like munging through the data and doing like the boring bit so you can get to the fun bit at the end. I think a lot of this empowers that boring bit at the start. And as as Tom that says, that 90% of it is 90% of the job. It's not the boring bit, the job is 90% doing that stuff. So if it facilitates any of that, I think that's great. And I think it, it frees up time. I don't think data scientists are the people that are gonna, if we take away the machine learning part of it, I don't think they're gonna say, Oh, well, that's that's all I could do. Data scientists sort of as a role, we do we do whatever is relevant relevant for the job. But if there's a, a people side of it, like John was talking about, where you have to work with stakeholders and stuff, but you're still in the data domain, that that job's still going to exist for quite a long time. So, I, I,
2: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say the key skill of being a data scientist is communication. I
0: was gonna, I was going to come to that because um, and it's becoming more and more apparent now that you've talked a lot about the. Um, the, the back-end the, or the, the, the initial analysis work and then the visualization John you talked about the architecture mm. but I think a lot of people forget that you need a stakeholder management yeah. process you need to have people that are engaging they're gonna be able to talk to people within the business who probably have never actually looked at data in their life so yeah. we're, we're, we're dealing mm. at the moment with a very very large organization who are trying to look at their Logistics and their supply chain and their manufacturing businesses to see where they can improve and be more profitable. Um, And they've said, you know, we want a team of data people that can go and talk to somebody on a warehouse, you know, in a warehouse and go, Right, what are your problems? What are your challenges? How can we use data to solve that? And then create a dashboard that not only tells the data scientist what the what the problem is or what they need to do. actually somebody in a warehouse can go oh yeah in in Mm -hmm. my language i know exactly what that means now so dashboarding is massively important but to get there in the first place you need somebody who's going to be able to a bit like a business analyst would do in a development project (laughs) right yeah
2: you've got to use the entire um, product team it's not it's very rare that you can go in as a data scientist and you alone can solve the issue usually the problem is ill-defined the company knows that they want to make more money or they want to be more efficient with the use of um, the trucks and whatever in you know, a logistic, I don't know enough about logistics <laughs> to, um, to know what those problems are, which is uh, exactly the point. Yes, yeah. You need to have um, business analysts or whoever to, un- to help understand the business problem and convey it, you need yeah. to have um, UX people who can help understand how best to convey the information to someone working in a warehouse, what information do they need to make a decision that's going to make, be more efficient for them and the company? Is it a dashboard? Is it something else? I, I certainly don't know. Well, yeah. the best way of doing it is speaking to them, figuring it out. Um, and yeah, you've got to have the communication, you've got to understand all the way through, because much as it's fun talking about algorithms, it's fun talking about the backend architecture, if you can go in and say, oh actually we spoke to the BA's, we spoke to UX, we spoke to CTO, we spoke to um, the front lift operator, the best way is we can take the average over this five second span and send you an email and then you can make mm-hmm. the right decision. That, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Don't do anything fancy. Yeah. solving sort of the problem. Yeah,
1: we found we found that at late rooms a, a lot of the job was. I always described that job as we were internal consultants because we had big projects that we were working on, but there was always downtime while you were waiting for someone to prioritize the work that you were claiming would make the millions. It, it was a really strange like back and forth. So we were always like going around to like we you know, like to the marketing team or to the c- contact center team, and we found that the more assumptions we made, the, we got it wrong right like if we looked at things we would we would discover things that i would then delete because i'd be like we can't we can't say this because we're not confident in this and then we'd go back to the data and we'd find out that all that data was collected after some other thing and if we went forward with the conclusions we originally had there would have been like huge consequences um, and it, it all came off this like these bad assumptions because column headings were incorrect or were just useless so it, it's so like end to end, you can't do so You
0: put bad data in, and you get bad data out. Yeah, no one ever has good data. Yeah. Just understanding yeah.
2: in what way it is bad, how you can use it
0: within how bad it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and so, um, one of the other questions I was going to ask you was um, uh, about this contentious discussion right now <coughs> about Google Cloud architecture versus AWS versus Microsoft Azure. Um, I think I was reading today. Everybody talks about AWS, and obviously they've got a lion's share of the market. I think it's something like 50, 51% of the market mm-hmm. right now. Um, then Azure has about 17% of the market. Um, IBM, who really uh, nobody talks about, um, they've got 11% of the market. And then Google Cloud, they've only got 6% of the market right now, apparently. But that's a hundred and twenty-five percent increase year on year. Okay. So they are really, you know, the late to the party, but everybody I speak to uh, seems to be talking about how much more flexible it is, it's open source, when you get the data in you can do a lot more with it, and the, a lot of talk about TensorFlow. Do you guys wanna kind of what what's your what's your take on that? So I'm quite surprised that um, Google Cloud
2: Platform has such a low uh, market share, yeah. albeit they certainly were the last to the, um, I think the last path as well, but it doesn't surprise me they're making such big gains year on year. Yeah. I've certainly found it's easiest to use them. Um, I've, I've not used AWS extensively, um, I've used Azure for a couple of projects, and I've used GCP. Now all of them, all of them that I've used did the job, got no major complaints about any of them, but I found UX of um, Google Cloud much easier up there than else um, and it's very easy to get going and get a project running. Um, yeah, I do appreciate the fact that there's so much um, involvement with open source but I think at a certain point, uh, like we were saying uh, um, earlier on before we started recording, it's a case of there's a lot of sim- similarities but understanding what the best um, tool is for your business um, based on where you are. Yeah. Now. I think there's a I think feature parity is the term I'm looking for. Um, wherever one of th- one of the three um, cloud providers will come up with a brand new feature, um, and it'll be game-changing, revolutionary, something that no one else can do. But within three to six months, one of the competitors will still have um, will still have produced a bit. something on their own platform that can, that can do that. So, um, AWS had the defu- um, it's not cloud function to AWS. Anyway, yeah, AWS Lambda, that's the name I'm looking for. AWS Lambda um, and Azure functions and Google Cloud functions are um, are available now. And I don't think that's something something that people are, um, of the industry as a whole, has adapted to to kind of figure out how to change architectures to make the most of. Yeah. Um, once you start taking advantage of those and f- understanding how different serverless components as well as compute components on your cloud can be joined together, that's where the real value lies. Right. If there's more, if you know, if for example, this is very much a hypothetical, AWS's um, Lambda functions are cheaper and quicker and more efficient, um, but it doesn't tie in so well with their um, Kinesis and the um, I always think of like a message queue similar to um, Kafka, whereas Google's PubSub um Google's pub may tie in better to Google Cloud Functions. Yeah. Now it may be slightly more expensive or slightly slow, but if that if that all works together and fits together as a framework better, it can be more efficient to maintain, save on operational costs, okay, um, and save on uptime. So it's about understanding how things work together rather than oh. having one thing or, um, or another. Okay. I think that's how I think about it. Yeah. And also, I don't think then um, the lock-ins is as much of a thing to be worried about in
0: general. Mm. Well if, if, if the company or a Microsoft house, they've got a development yeah. team, or you know, .NET, v, you know, running C-sharp or whatever it might be, then they're, they're going to naturally go to Azure aren't they?
2: Yeah. yeah, And to be honest I think that's a natural place to start, yeah. but at the same time it's, well, y- you probably don't want to spend too much time comparison shopping to get your first project out to understand it. But having used Python across all three, um, across all three um, cloud providers, none of them specifically cater for, for Python. But it was well, none of them sp- specifically Python houses. But even Azure was very good um, with documentation for how to get going with Python. Oh,
0: so, so Joe, your take on um, what John said before, um, AWS Azure, GCP. What, what's your take on it? So.
1: It's really common in software development to have these weird like very petty wars between software choices or framework choices. Yeah. And front-end development is so famous for having React versus whatever the other ones are. You can tell I use React. Do you really? <laughs> so, uh, you'll see this the same kind of thing with yeah. this AWS, Google Cloud Platform. It's so weird the Google Cloud Platform is even in the discussion. It's so small, but I think yeah. I think it's rightfully there. Um, having used it, I think the user experience of Google Cloud Platform is incredible compared to the other ones. The documentation has code snippets in Python. I'm pretty sure it has C sharp. It has multiple, you know, it was always easy to kind of do what we wanted to do. And uh, I think like like you guys were saying before, if, if the company you work with uses a lot of Microsoft tools, it might make sense to use Azure because I would assume they have plugins for whatever other Microsoft tools you use. If you're using yeah. Office 365, I would assume I can automate something in there using something in Azure. Now the thing is as a front-end dev and a data analyst and a data scientist and all these other roles, the most common tool I would use would be Google Analytics. And so I assume whatever cloud platform I use needs to be able to work very well with Google Analytics and obviously Google Cloud Platform does that very nicely as well. So you can export your entire Google Analytics history to Google BigQuery. Yeah. Google BigQuery. Um, And it just makes everything Really easy. And whenever Google does their take on something when they do Google Places for travel, they always do it with you know, there was millions spent on u- user experience research and testing and making sure everything makes sense to everyone. And I've always found, you know, AWS, I think, I think, appeared like five years before Google Cloud Platform did. So it makes sense that it's got this huge share. And it also makes sense that, you know, if I have five years' experience with Python and none with R, it makes sense that if someone new joins the team, I could, like, you're going to learn Python because I like Python, but R might be the better choice, and, and I think that's what. Maybe I should flipped this. I'm not going to. I'm not going to poo on R <laughs> now. But it's kind of that's the way I see it. Like Google Cloud Platform is coming in, offering this feature parity, and at the same time they're doing it with a better experience, and it really plugs and plays with everything that I would ever expect to see as a front end developer. So it all just it all just makes sense to me. Don't make any other notes. There's a better free trial system with Google uh, Cloud Platform okay. if you're a small if you're a small company I think you get 300 US dollars credit every month until you start going over it or something like that there's no okay. end to that free trial period now right. I think AWS is a year yeah I, I think I
2: know a couple of people have got that I'm not sure how <laughs> yeah
1: I've, I've never paid for Google Cloud Platform but I've used it for right. my personal <laughs> projects so this, it's when you're in a big industry obviously 300 dollars a month is nothing yeah you, you will go way over that with your cloud costs but that's if you're a hobbyist, if you want to learn something, that's a great way to do it. You shouldn't, in my eyes, if you want to learn how to use something like Google BigQuery, you shouldn't have to put your credit card in and be worried that you're going to get charged as an individual for trying to skill up and learn something for your industry. Um, Google Cloud Platform is apparently cheaper on average, don't know, um, and AWS has more data centers, so maybe it's faster. But that's all my notes. Um, but I think that I think that five-year head start is key for AWS. Yeah. Well, I used AWS must be like four or five years ago, um, and I remember like thinking, oh, I should get qualified in this. This looks like, the, you know, the new big thing that's going to be really cool. Like be the member of the front end team that's doing the deployments and stuff. And um, I remember going to like the product page, and there are about a hundred things, and the icons all just reminded me of like they they were like the old style AWS icons and. and it was—it's a really weird reason to look at like a cloud platform and go like this kind of sucks. But it was like the front end that really put me off. And with Google, everything was just—everything was just nice and everything was easy. And you—you you can tell the same way I prefer React as my framework. I do prefer Google Cloud Platform. So it may be slightly biased, but I'm a fan. <laughs> so they're
0: late to the party, but yeah. they are typically in Google fashion. They're getting it right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so. Okay. Interesting. Um, Obviously we're, we're kind of talking to your you guys about partnering with our clients to offer our clients a little bit more than just can we come along and talk to you about your jobs um, we have always kind of said that we're about helping companies build their data teams um, and it's not just about putting a bum on a seat um, and it's not just about you know sending them CVs with lots of different buzzwords so we want to uh, work with you guys to help our clients basically uh, get that recruitment right, um, and, it, and it not just be about uh, the pre-screening of candidates, although that is something that you obviously are going to help us with. But it's actually going back right to the start and actually asking the client the question: What do you want to get from the data? And you, you mentioned earlier, John, about um, you know what, what does the client uh, what's their objectives? Mm. Where do they want to be? Uh, what questions do they want to ask of this data so do you want to just sort of talk a little bit about the experience you've had recently with companies mm-hmm. that perhaps have benefited from your consultancy yeah. services should we introduce what pdfta is That's That's great. yeah yeah
2: sure yeah. to go ahead and do that sure <laughs> P- so Sorry. pdfta
1: is at, at the start we are a end-to-end data product development so we ideally we want to make products ourselves. We're currently working on a recommendation system, uh, and we think it has to be you know like like Google Cloud Platform. It needs to be plug and play. It needs to be easy to pick up. And we think that that's what a lot of people are doing wrong. Um, if we then then after that we're a data consultancy. So maybe we'll make those end to end products in house for you if that's what you'd like. And then at the same time I'm looking at attacking the same sort of problems from the recruitment perspective. So working with you and maybe other recruiters to tackle things like, you know, why do we interview the way we interview right now, are, are we pushing out the best candidates by the way we interview, and like you say, going into those businesses and saying, what do you actually hope to get from a data scientist, is there one project that you're talking about where maybe a good data scientist could do that in five days, and you should be looking at paying a contractor instead of putting down 60 grand for some head of data science and building out this whole fun- function, or are you not even ready to get there yet, so That's that's kind of what PDFTA is
2: looking at. Doing at the moment. What was the rest of the question? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think the rest of it is looking at w- w- when you're saying when you say to businesses, okay, well, what do you want to get from the data? I'd say even take it a step back from that. So what do you want to get? What are your problems? Yeah. Uh, where do you want to be? Yeah. In fa- whatever five years. What is stopping you? And have that conversation on a business level, because once you understand where someone wants to go, you can um, start start looking into the data. because if it turns out most of their objectives are are unrelated to data in the first place then you can kind of stop someone and say okay well right there you may think that data is a you know data science or machine learning project is a good idea um, and I obviously think that, you, that often case um, they are but if someone wants to get, um, get involved in it but it's not going to help them main priorities for a business that's not something mm. that's going to help their business overall so really starting from the top, then understanding, going right down to the bottom, what basic resources are available, what data yeah. do they collect, um, where can we access the data. So in an e-commerce situation, someone wants to uh, predict the likelihood of a, an, of a new visitor to the website making a purchase on that exact um, on that site on that site visit. It's all well good having a huge amount of information in the back end, but you need to be able to get a, um, you need to deliver a solution that can also have, um, surface the data at the front end so yeah the, um, you know the UX team and the front end developers can do something with it yeah um, so there's all these constraints about what the da- where the data is what it contains but also where, where you can use it okay. um, and once you understand um, on a high level what a business wants to achieve and uh, medium level you don't need to know the ins and outs to start, um, start to get some ideas um, about the data can start saying, okay, this is what we can do. This is how we go from what could be a you know a mammoth task that can deliver millions of pounds of value and break it down into small tasks of
0: one little bit here and this will this will help build a foundation that will take you to um, to where you really want to get to. And typically, the sort of size of company or the type of company you're talking to, what what does that look like for you, for you guys? So I mean, I think mostly smaller ones really? Well, generally um, SMEs, um, yeah,
2: yeah. generally we've looked at um, e-commerce companies um, and a couple of IoT companies but um, again I've done a little bit of speaking with um, local local movement, um and they have completely different um, problems um, with data and they're facing completely different challenges to businesses Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting learning from them as well
0: yeah, I, was, I was talking to a local authority um, that are looking to adopt um, data around um, uh, littering mm. which you know, again you know like a completely different problem and um, it's not about you know making money or saving money this yeah. is you know um, there's new laws that have come in recently you now will be fined £150 if you litter but still littering still flights have been going on how do you catch people so there's a company that I, we're talking to at the moment They've got a patent to actually identify um, uh, these people that are actually littering, and using data and uh, artificial intelligence to then send a message to a local authority uh, person with a, a mobile app that will get um, a notification and video evidence of a car fly mm. tipping. There's their registration plate, and being able to to issue a fine. You know, it's real world problems and challenges, and it's not just about Companies wanting to make money or save yeah. money. So you're right. right. The it's public sector is completely different. It's challenges. Completely same. Yeah. Um, Completely different. You, I would never have
2: um, thought that fly tipping and bin collections are such massive issues to government, yeah. but but they are. Yeah. Um, and they are often more difficult to, um, problems to com- to describe in a mathematical sense than we want to optimize the amount of money we make, which yeah. is a, an easy to easy to understand, hard to achieve. Um, but with government. It, oftentimes much more nebulous but this is where you really need to understand the problem understand the business domain and figure out how they can do something to to actually help in the meantime because they don't have um, you know
0: millions of pounds of spending budget either so it's figuring out a solution that will work for them. Um, What's your opinion on um, kind of ethical data science so it's not something that I think a lot of people are talking about it at the moment but if you've recently watched the Netflix documentary The Big Hack, is it The Big Hack? I think that's right, I've um, not seen it yet but I've read about it. And it's all about Facebook advertising and how they're manipulating people's minds and um, propaganda and, uh, and all this sort of stuff. What, what where, where do you see sort of ethical data science coming through because we, we talked about customer acquisition, this mm. is what people mm. want. but. But you yeah, know, we all know that it goes on, um, but then we're kinda surprised when it happens yeah. to us a little bit. Yeah, I think it's And data is pushing that, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's something we need to take incredibly seriously. Yeah. because um, I mean to thin end of the wedge, you know, oh we're doing this little thing on our website, what's the big deal going to be? And yeah. to an extent that can be correct if it's something that's very small, very constrained and doesn't have very much impact. But if it doesn't have very much impact, it's probably not gonna have very much value if you're comfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's something you need to take and keep an eye on all the time and it is. I don't have a nice oh do this and it'll be fine because yeah. there isn't a good answer to it, it's something people need to um, be consistently worked on and um, improving on. Um, I went to a talk um, run by Open Data Manager last year, I think it, I think it was maybe the year before, um, where Sa- uh, Sapphire Nobel, I name I could get in the show, notes later on, right? yeah. um, she, wrote, uh, she wrote a book on this um, based in America, and about how some many um, different people, prim- and primarily um, uh, women from underrepresented minorities, but all kinds of people, have been adversely affected by um, by machine learning algorithms in all walks of life, um, because people don't understand both the training data that goes in um, and what pe- what actions have been taken on that. So right. there's was a famous, um, a relatively famous um, investigation that was done into. Um, uh, predicting probation, it's something to do with probation uh, in US prisons, who's going to um, who's going to end up in prison, who's going to be allowed out probation, what sentences should be, stuff like that, um, and basically an awful lot of um, important features that people use were basically, um, what's the word, they were incredibly high, highly correlated to race, so right. basically it was, um, if you were a young black man you were going to be treated much more harshly than someone who wasn't for no reason, and that's what the training data said. Yeah. Um, there's a similar thing with them. Um, Amazon's um, hiring practices when they try to use AI to determine who's practiced, um, sorry, who should be um, recruited, and an awful lot of it is because um, because the training data in the past has been trained on what is essentially racist behaviour, and it can be from small individual inc- incidents, which almost may not seem like an incident over the course of millions of examples yeah. is a very strong pattern yeah. they really can impact um, mm. real people's real lives so to to
0: making s- predictions on historical data where actually in the future the historical, historical,
2: data is historical bias already. right well yeah. the, the bias is already in there it's not yeah. necessarily historical um, but the bias yeah the bias is already there so yeah. if you're not keeping that careful eye out so it, um, w- yeah, one, uh, one useful thing I think that people can use when they're trying to make predictions is um, when when you're training your model, um, taking out, um, looking at specific slices of data. So, for example, what's the gender bias split? Um, are we getting massive amounts of false positives for women as opposed to men? How does that impact in the business use case? What what would the, be the impact if we took this live? Yeah, and um, thinking through that and while it may be optimal financially are there risks and impacts there that are going to um, affect real people Do we need to say no this model isn't ready for production and we need to be aware of that. Right. Yeah.
1: It has to be incredibly contextual based on whatever the situation is I guess and that's, sure. that's this thing data scientists are finding themselves have, they have to do when they start a company or join a company or whatever they are Their job mainly isn't data science, it's to become this like business transformation expert because now data is going to be a core part of this company, Uh, how do we use that in an ethical way? I think it's it's a really tricky question to answer this because I need to uh, reveal some opinions I have on government rule and stuff like that, but if we're going to regulate something like the use of data, that those regulations need to come from a place of expertise. What we currently have at the moment with things like GDPR is we can protect we have is it protected fields or something like that. So you can't in, in models and stuff you shouldn't be using, you know, gender or race as a feature. But like John says, if you if address is allowed as a feature, maybe that address is indicative of race already. And mm-hmm. um, and there's a um oh man, what was it? Oh yes. So in Europe you've not been able to do it for a while, you can't use gender to change the way you the change to change the way you price or anything like that is discrimination. Um, so if you wanted to, for example, have car insurance and you knew that sixty percent of your customers are men, forty percent of them are women, men actually should get higher men should get priced yeah. higher for yeah. car insurance yeah. because they're much more likely to get in yeah. crash despite whatever stereotypes there are. Yeah. Um but if you use that part of the form that says this is a man, so you should be able to increase the cost of that car insurance for that person. Instead, they can get around that, and this is the problem you can regulate, but if we can still get around it, it's not really a regulation. So if you have some other method of predicting whether or not those people are male or female, then you can change the price for everyone so that it represents that 60-40 split, so that everybody is priced fairly, but now you're still pricing the men higher but the women are paying for it, which doesn't mm. really make sense. Okay. Um, something. So, for example, if if you have access to shopping data, for mm. example, uh, there are products that men are much more likely to buy than women. That like men's Gillette razors yeah. over the women's Gillette. Ra- you know, so yeah. much of our product is gendered already. So it's really easy to perform clustering and say we have two types of customers in our supermarket. We have group A, and we have group B, and that's legal in mm. Europe. But right. the moment you say group male, group female, now it's illegal. So we need, oh, okay. if we're going to regulate it like that and try and protect ethics from that avenue, there needs to be something much more intelligent in place. Yeah, it's, interesting. Interesting.
2: it's a complicated thing. And it's yeah. You can't take data ethics aside from business et- ethics and the broader being ethical in general. Mm. Um, but it's definitely something yeah. that people need to be aware of and actively improving yeah. on. I would like to
1: hope, as individual data scientists, we, we sort of challenge our work and we ask ourselves is this work we're doing ethical, could this be used in the incorrect way. Um, obviously that's not how business works at all so I'm sure loads of people will prove me wrong but it would be nice if the regulation were like not this.
0: So. Yeah. <laughs> um, talking back earlier about um, interviewing candidates and mm-hmm. um, that's part of something that we're going to work together on, um, what you, you you posted today. About um, uh, relevant tests for candidates. Yeah, the, we, we, you know we see it regularly. We send a CV profile to a client, having taken a job description. We've checked with the candidate. We've maybe interviewed them. Uh, we can see where they've worked. We might not be able to take references at that stage, but then we send a CV, and there is a, a process where the client says okay, or the company says right, we want to we want to do a test. What, what's your opinion on on the on the tests that that kind I'm work. so prepared. For this
1: run. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote this blog post today about why I disagree with these take-home tests. What and and I even provide four solutions of what you could do instead. So in technology, not just in data, front end, even in marketing roles, it's common to have this pattern of you send a CV in get no response maybe you don't even know you've submitted the CV you may have put it into a custom form on that website so you you can't just upload your CV you have to copy and paste bits in that's all super frustrating and now you might not even get a response I think that's all bad next step is a phone interview some people are really uncomfortable with phone interviews some people love phone interviews there's not much choice otherwise but but really that at that point you're trying to gauge whether there's a personality fit in my eyes I may be totally wrong because I've I've not seen this from the recruitment side of it. Then after that, it's very common to get what's called a kata or a take-home task. I assume they use CATA to make it sound very cool in software development. But a kata is a, from martial arts, it's like a rehearsed set of moves so that you can perfectly hone some sort of skill. So really, it should be something in software development that we do over and over again to make sure that we understand patterns or a good architecture or a good solution to a problem. It's not really that. It seems to be a way to offload a large amount of work on somebody who's probably in a disadvantaged situation. They might be made redundant. They might be hating their job at the moment and need a way out. And then uh, the company will often say to them, here's a task, please don't spend more than two hours on it. And that, that sort of wipes the ethical slate clear because they're saying, don't spend more than two hours on it. So if I choose to not spend more than two hours on it, that's great, but it's not going to be my best work. If there's one other person applying you can bet they've spent 40 hours on it and they've probably done something fantastic so I can't do two hours so I, I've now done multiple hours work potentially filling in all this then after that normally you go in and they will look at they'll look at it with you and they'll review it together but they might review it beforehand so up until this point I may have done 40 hours of work the company has like written the job spec which they might have had before it, it, it should just be a much more efficient process in my eyes and I, I think I honestly think with some really intentional questions, you could get more than you could get from the CATA. Uh, or I think you should be able to, you should offer to pair program with them on a problem yeah. you already have. And then at least you're taking away, you know, there's so much there's so much mental effort that goes into understanding the problem, understanding the context. And sometimes that context or problem doesn't make sense or isn't provided. And you know, when we, we've done CATAs in the past, you'll look at it and you'll go like, this, like, what does this data mean? Or what does this column mean? How should, I, how should I be treating this? And at the end of it, I always think, I would never work this way. I would never commit my code like yes. this. I would never present it in this way. This isn't It's this not. Is like a,
0: it's not a reflection exactly. of a real world
1: situation. And then what's the point of the interview, yeah. right? The whole yeah. purpose of the interview, in my eyes, is assessing your proficiency for the job. Yeah. And I think the important things there are checking what skill level you're currently at and how willing you are to learn a new skill. So I think, instead of a catter, uh, the best question I've ever been asked in an interview was what's your opinion on linting? So linting is this um, sort of like an automated tool that checks if there's any errors in your code or any styling inconsistencies. So it's excellent for working with a team to make sure everyone writes the same kind of codes to solve the same kind of problem, and it doesn't break before anyone tries to compile anything. So that's like a, a kind of advanced tool that's totally optional, but what you get there is when you ask someone what's your opinion on linting, you get sort of three options. You either get I don't know. Maybe four options. You get, I don't know, which is fine. You get someone who lies and pretends they know what it is. Bad. Don't hire them. Uh, you get someone who says, I don't know, but can you tell me? And then you, and then you know this person is actually willing to learn. And then the fourth one, you've got sort of more senior level who say, oh, yes, we use linting because it enforces this. It's really helpful in team because it does this. Now I know a lot. If okay. I had a cat that they sent me that they spent 40 hours on, I probably need to spend half an hour to an hour to go through it. Why don't I just ask five minute question? So I think there's a lot of problems in the way it's done at the moment. I really think it comes from a lack of expertise in that in that industry. And, and you've got to think, b- because of the way data science is at the moment, a lot of companies are hiring the first data scientist, mm-hmm. and they're thinking, how do we hire the first data scientist we're ever we going to hire? We've got the internet, so we Google how to hire a data scientist, and now you're in trouble because now yeah. it'll say now it's going to be full of opinions. It's yeah. not going to say, oh, data science is actually six different jobs. There might be example of job specs that are going to ask for like multiple years and whatever. And at the end of it, nobody at your company is a data scientist. So you don't know what tool is right for the job. If someone comes in and says, I've got seven years AWS, and on your job spec you wrote two years Google Cloud Platform, that's probably a great person to hire. But you have no idea, so there's no, there's no specialty there. So I think there's this huge, I think there's a huge gap for companies to sort of take liability there and say, I don't know how to hire a data scientist. And from that, speak to people like you, John and me. yeah, and, and we say, here's how you hire a data scientist. Here's like a 10 minute talk. This is what data science is. Are you sure you need it? And if they say, yeah, we think we need it, then then you go deeper and you say, why do you think you need it? And if they say, because data science is cool, oh, I've seen it everywhere, I've read a blog post. These are all like red flags. You need, you need to have something more than more than I need to be cool, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's my opinion. Oh, yeah. I like it. <laughs> Drop mic. Yeah. Um,
0: excellent. Listen, that's been great. Um, the the I, I think we've covered everything. I think we've covered everything. Yeah, okay. Is there any questions you want to ask me? Do you think mm-hmm. that we've got everything?
2: I mean, I think we could run for an awful lot of time <laughs> on various things no like data science. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Listen, it's been great having you here today, guys. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, it's been lovely talking to you about... Um, all things data science and um, you know I've learned a lot today Um, and hopefully um, everybody watching the video will will pick up something at least and uh, yeah thank you very much indeed for coming along. Thank you for having us. Yeah lovely. Thank you very much. Cheers John. Thanks Joe. (laughs) Lovely stuff.